Well, I'm so glad to see you. I went out on a limb this morning. I was telling Lynette at the guest service booth that I was going to predict that we weren't going to have as many people this week as we did last week. She said, oh, you're a real prophet. You are. (laughs) Of course, last week was Easter. And uh, how many were here for our services last week? I'll tell you, if you missed it, you missed a glorious celebration. It was really, really great. And I want to thank everyone who had a part of uh, helping our, our Easter celebration last weekend to go so well. And I mean, the folks up in the praise team and the tech team and the leaders and people working in the nursery and people parking cars, everything came together as it should to have a wonderful, glorious celebration of Resurrection Day. So again, thank everybody who had a part. Thank all of you who came and thank you for those of you who brought somebody with you. Last week, we kind of strayed away from the normal focus on kind of the normal Easter celebration events. You know, things like the portrayal of Jesus in the garden and his trial by Caiaphas and his trial by Pontius Pilate, his scourging and, and his crucifixion, even the resurrection. And instead, we focused in on a more obscure but important critical part of the Easter event of the resurrection event even, because it precedes it. And that is we focused in on the veil that hung in the temple of God in Jerusalem. You know, in in our celebrations of Easter, we noted last week that often we overlook this veil. This veil, just if you weren't here, let me explain what it is. In the temple, where, where the Jewish people did their sacrifices... There were three sections. There was an outer courtyard. That's where the normal people went. There was an inner courtyard. That's where all the priests did their duties. And then there was a place called the Holy of Holy Place. That's where God dwelt among the people. And we talked last week that their God was. God dwelt right there, right beyond a curtain that separated the inner court from the Holy of Holies was God himself. He who had all the answers to every question in life who had all the solutions to every problem. He who could grant absolute peace and eternal joy to people. And yet, even though he was right behind that veil, that veil was a barrier between those outside who were, who were the, the imperfect and he on the inside who was perfect. But at the moment of Jesus' death, The Bible recorded Matthew 27, verses 50 and 51. It said, Jesus hanging on the cross now, and when he cried out with a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And it says, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, now if you weren't here, you, you missed a lot of the significance of what that meant and what that curtain was all about. But basically, what, what we, we concluded last week was at that very moment, God himself stood up in the Holy of Holies, and he took that curtain 60 foot tall and 30 feet wide, and he ripped it from top to bottom, saying this, you are now welcomed into the most holy place. See, before, for hundreds and hundreds of years, the only person that could go beyond that veil was the chief priest of Israel, and he could only do it one day a year on the Day of Atonement to offer a blood sacrifice for all the unknown sins of the nation of Israel. And now, God, 
at the moment of Jesus' death, tore that veil, saying that separation no longer exists. Why? Because when Jesus died on the cross, even before his resurrection, Jesus had paid the price. Jesus had paid the ransom with his own body, with his own blood. He had paid the ransom for sin. Right at that moment. Now, in the New Testament, the author of the New Testament book of Hebrews then encourages us this, with these words. Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 20 and verse 23. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful. He says, because God now has torn the veil and welcomed us into the holy place through Jesus' sacrifice, he says, let us hold unswervingly onto that hope for he who promised is faithful. Now, I have no problem with that last statement. How about you? How many believe that he who promised is faithful? But how about that first part? He who holds unswervingly. What's that look like? What's that about? I mean, just how solid is our hope? The word hope, the English verb hope, can be used in one of two forms. It can be used in a transitive form. And in that form... Its definition is this, to want something to happen, to cherish a desire with anticipation. That's, in, that's the intransitive form. Yeah, I, I got a confession to make to you. I, I've gotten caught up. I've become a publisher's clearinghouse addict. You know, you used to get those stupid things in the mail, and, and you'd have to hunt all over the place for these little stickers you had to stick on and that. Well, they've gotten into the 21st century. Now it's all, I guess they still send those, but now you can get it on your computer. And so I had signed up one time because I wanted to buy one of those quality pieces of merchandise they offer. And now every day, I get about three or four of those emails saying, don't miss this one. You can win $7,000 for the rest of your life. Don't miss this. Don't ignore this one. And, you know, I, I get there, and I go to the delete button, and my finger just can't do it. And I got to open it up, and I got to go through all this stuff, and I got to do the search, and it's driving me crazy because I sit there with intransitive hope, thinking, man, what if I won that $7,000 a week for life? What if I didn't? See, that's hope in the intransitive sense. But there's another usage of that verb, and that's in the transitive sense, and its definition goes like this, to desire with expectation of obtainment, to expect with confidence. Now, as you think of your relationship with Jesus Christ, as you think of God Tearing that veil from top to bottom. As you think of unswervingly holding on to that hope, God asked you the question which hope are you holding on to? 
Are you holding on to hope in the intransitive sense? Man, I really hope it's true. Are you holding on in the transitive sense? I know it's true. Well, let me challenge you a little further. Which version of hope would you embrace about yourself as you consider 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 and 2? It says, now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. Huh. How firmly have you held on? How would you respond to Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23? Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior, that's when we were on the outside of the veil. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. Oh, how firmly have you held your faith? Let me give you one more. How about Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 4, where the author says, It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance. Just how solid is your hope? Today I want to talk to you about the hope that Easter brings. What we're really talking about is the eternal security of the Christian, the eternal security of the believer. How secure are you? How secure is your salvation? How secure is your hope of eternal life with God? Well, this morning, I want to give you three, and there are more, but I want to give you three because of the time we have. Three reasons why you can unswervingly embrace hope in the transitive verb sense to desire with expectation of obtainment, to expect with confidence. Why can you hold on? Why can you hold on to this promise in the transitive sense of hope rather than the intransitive hope that so many people deal with and even some Christian denominations profess? Why can you go home today knowing, not just hoping it happens someday and hoping we haven't been fooling you or tricking you or misrepresenting God, how can you go home today with the transitive understanding of hope saying, I know know it's going to happen, I expect it's going to happen, and I'm going to rejoice when it happens. How can you know that? Are you ready to go? 
All right, reason number one. Why can you embrace that transitive sense of hope? Because God made you family. God made you family. And the verse that I use a lot around here, John 1, verse 12, and then I'm going to add verse 13, it says this. Yet to all who received him, who's him? Jesus. To those who believed on his name, whose name? Jesus' name. He gave the right to become, read it with me, children of God. Say it again. Children of God. Now he goes on to qualify that. Children not born of natural descent, like your kids and your grandkids and you were born, nor of human decision or a husband's will. This wasn't some planned event. It says, but born of who? God. See, we evangelicals used to say you had to be born again, but then the culture twisted those words, and so we said, well, we're fundamentalists, but now they twist that into some kind of terrorist thing, so we got to keep changing our verbiage. But the bottom line is this, that you were born into God's family. Look what it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world, be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, there's a whole nother message in that phrase right there that we got to get to someday, but we don't have time today. But look what it goes on. In what? Love, he predestined us to be what? Adopted as his sons through Christ Jesus in accordance with his pleasure and will. So in love, God chose to adopt us because of our faith in Christ Jesus. And in doing so, he made us family. He made you family. He literally, not figuratively, not metamorphically, he literally adopted you as one of his own children. He made you family. Now, sometimes in a dysfunctional family, We might hear something like this. Some adult child gets angry with his mother and he says, from this day on, I renounce you as my mother. This day on, you are no longer my mother. Or some parent will get upset with one of their kids and say, from this day longer, you are no longer my daughter. You are no longer part of this family. Well, what that declaration really says is, we're not gonna relate to you that way. We're not going to be in relationship. I'm not gonna treat you that way. But the fact of the matter is, they're still family. That mother is still the mother of that son, whether she renounces him or not. That mother is still the mother of of whoever, whether they renounce her or not, because you can't quit family. You may fall out of fellowship family, you might fall out of relationship with family, but you are family once you are family. And so God says of you, I have made you family. You are my family. And whether you get upset with me and fall out of fellowship with me, you're still my son. You're still my daughter. See, God adopted you. God brought you into his family. And he can never change it. He could not, and he has declared that he will never change the fact that you are his child. Now, closely related to that, God also trumped your behavior. See, that's where most of this insecurity about, am I really going to get there? Is this really true? That's mostly what it evolves around is our behavior. Now, let me walk you through a little scriptural journey here. Romans 3.23, 
And if you want to understand Christian theology, if you want to understand Christian doctrine, read the sixth book of the New Testament, this book of Romans, because it lays it out. And so Romans 6.23 says this, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. What that means is every human being has sinned. Every human being has done wrong. Every human being has violated God's commands, has violated God's will, has violated God's proclamation of his word. Every human being has done that. I have, you have, we've all done it. And that means we fall short of the glory of God. In other words, we fall short of who God is. And therefore, we also fall short of what heaven is. See, heaven in the book of Revelation says that God's not going to allow any impure thing into his heavenly kingdom, into his holy kingdom, his eternal kingdom. That means anything with any kind of blemish at all. And all of us, we readily understand that we are sinners. Most people have no problem with that at all. Now, what they might have problem with is this next part. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is what? Death. Now, what are we talking about? Just physical death? Just dying when the heart stops? No, we're talking about eternal death. We're talking about eternal separation from God. We're talking about eternal punishment. That's not popular, but it's biblical. The wages of sin is death. Now, that's where a lot of people kind of get stuck, and they say, no, wait a minute. That can't be. I mean, I, I, I get it. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Yeah, I know, I've sinned, sure, we all have. We, but but I'm, I'm, I'm not a bad person. I'm not a horrible person. Or, or that, that guy over there, are you telling me that that, that, that guy, just he's a good guy, he's moral, he's, he's a good dad, he's a good husband, he's a good father. He's, are you telling me? See, we get caught up with this idea that, all right, yeah, we're not perfect, but come on now, we are not worthy of eternal death. Surely God really wouldn't do that. Well, let me try to explain it this way. We are, most of us are good, decent, do our best, try our hardest people. But the accumulative effect over a lifetime of our sin disqualifies us from eternal life. Now really, the first one does. Because what, what does Romans say? Nothing impure. First time we messed up, first time we lied, first time we had an unhealthy thought, we were done. That's why it says, for all have sinned, come short of the glory of God. But think about this. Let's say that you were a pretty good guy, pretty good woman, and you just committed three sins a day. Now, a sin could be an unkind thought, or driving down the street and somebody cut you off and you cut them off again. Or maybe you get into a little, little thing with the spouse, or maybe with the kids, or maybe with a coworker, and you're kind of fantasizing their demise at your desk because of a fight you guys had. Okay, I, I mean, it could be a lot of different things. You're not acting loving, you're not being patient, you're not being generous, you're not being kind. Whatever it is, let's say you just commit three a day. That's pretty conservative. You realize that's 1,095 sins a year? And let's say you live to be 70 years old, and let's give you 10 years because you haven't really reached the age of accountability until you're about 10 years old, maybe. That means you've committed 65,700 sins in your life. Now, tell me 
that you've also created 67,000 or 65,700 acts of righteousness in your life. But you'd have to do more if you could earn your way to heaven. So there's no way to earn our way to heaven. The offenses are too great. So therefore, justly, God declares the wages of sin is death. But it goes on to say this. But, the read it with me, gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God sees us in that helpless estate. He sees us in this, those 65,700 sins over a lifetime, and that's being conservative. And he says, there's nothing they can do. There's no way to reverse that. There's no do-overs, and you couldn't do that many do-overs if I gave them a do-over. So I've got to do something for them. So what did he do? He sent a gift, and the gift had a name on it, and the gift's name was who? Jesus Christ. So God gives a gift. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own what? Love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, God didn't wait for us to clean up our act because it didn't matter how clean our act was because 65,700 sins over a lifetime, if we're being conservative, still is not going to get there, Right? So God couldn't wait and say, okay, let me wait till you're doing right and you're doing perfect and you really are tenderhearted towards me because that would never happen. So he said, here's how he demonstrates his love. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. So it's a gift of what? Love. Given to us at our lowest point. Given to us while we were the most undesirable, while we were the least cooperative, God sent Jesus to die on the cross. Titus chapter 3, verse 4 through 5 says, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his what? His what? His mercy. See, again, do you get the pattern here? Well, one more. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace. What is grace? That's unmerited favor. That's what we don't deserve. Through that you've been saved, through faith, and read it with me. It is Okay, now read it with some, some enthusiasm. And it is from yourself. Keep going. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. God made eternal forgiveness something that only could come from him. It's by his grace. It's because God at some point just said, I love these fallen creatures. I love these imperfect men and women. I love them. They're my prized creation. I intended to spend life with them. I intended to spend eternity with them. I love them. They messed it up. There's nothing they can do to change it. So I've got to do for them what they can't do for themselves. And just out of my love, I'm offering them a gift of love. And that gift comes through faith in Jesus Christ. 
See, salvation is not performance-based. It's a gift. And we as human beings, when we give gifts of love, even in our fallen natures, even though our emotions can turn on a dime in one minute, we can just be cuddly and, and googly with each other. The next moment, we could be sitting across the room looking at each other and frowning and seething with each other. Still, when we give a gift at Christmas or birthday, we never take that gift back based on performance based on behavior, because it was not given based on performance. It was not given based on behavior. It was given as a gift of love. And we wouldn't take it back. Well, how much more would God never take it back? See, salvation is not performance-based. And therefore, salvation is not performance-maintained. Think of it this way. If I cannot do good works to get salvation, then how can I do bad works to be unsaved again. How can that happen when it's never been based on works? It's never been based on my performance. How can I, since I can't get it, how could I lose it? When it's based not on me, but on God's mercy and God's grace and God's love. See, God trumped your behavior. He overcame my behavior. He overcame your behavior. He adopted us in the family. He said, you're mine, and you're mine not based on what you've done, but you're mine based on what I've done for you. But I told you I'd give you three. There's one more, and this is my favorite. You ready for the last one? You can embrace that transitive sense of the word hope because God keeps his promises. God keeps his promises. Let me illustrate that. Let me ask you a question. Why does Israel still exist? I mean, think about this. Going all the way back to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, God pulls out Abraham and, and, and he blesses him. He said, I'm going to make you a great nation. That nation is, we know, is the Jewish people today. And this nation, these, these Jewish people who were God's chosen people, their history is characterized by one rebellion against God after another. One seeking foreign gods and pagan gods and, and the gods of this and the gods of that and even sacrificing children and, and having sexual orgies and all that kind of stuff. They, they got into all of this. Their history is filled with rebellion against God who chose them among all people of the earth. Then finally, he sends to them their long-promised Messiah, their Savior, and although they embrace him initially only because he's healing their, their sick and he's raising their dead and he, they think that he's going to overthrow Rome, but immediately when they figure out he's not going to do that, they're yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And even though, as we looked at last week, a pagan Roman leader, a pagan Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, even though he tried on three attempts to get them to, to, to not desire his death, he finally washes his hands symbolically and says, this innocent man, don't put his blood on mine, it's on yours. And what they scream out? They screamed out, let his blood be on us and on our children. And they willingly and viciously and aggressively nailed Jesus to a cross, stripped him off his clothes. And as he hung dying a horrible death, they rebuked him and made fun of him until he was dead. I don't know about you, but they ought to be glad that I'm not God. How about you? They ought to be glad that I'm not God. 
Because if I was God, they wouldn't be on earth anymore. And yet we have seen in their history, time after time, since the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God's divine intervention in the history of them as a nation to where in 1948, God even brought them back to their promised land and miraculously has preserved them in that land. Why? Because God keeps his promises. See, in Genesis chapter 12, when the whole thing started and God called Abram out, it says in Genesis 12, 1, he said, the Lord said to Abram, leave your country and your people and your father's household and go to a land I will show you. And look what he says. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all the people of the earth will be blessed through you. Now I know we can say, well, yeah, that was the initial plan. That's what God said initially, but, but the thing didn't work out like God intended to do and they, they rebelled. Well, well, look what he says later on in Genesis chapter 13, verse 14. This is after, after Abram had rescued Lot from Sodom and Gomorrah the first time. And, and, and now God appears to, to Abram and he says this. He says, the Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, lift up your eyes from where you are and look north and south, east and west. All the land that you see, read it with me. I will give you and your offspring. What's the word? What's the word? Forever. Why does Israel exist today? Because God keeps his promises. Despite our behavior. Now, what do we do with that? Well, look what God says to you and me today. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who's a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's who? Possession, they're his family, to the praise of his glory. I'll give him praise for that. How about you? Amen. See? I, I love how Peter put it. One of the original, the, the leader of the disciple band. How Peter put it in his first New Testament letter. First Peter chapter 1 verses 3 through 5. He said this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a what? A living hope. A transitive hope. Not an intransitive, I wonder. He goes on to say, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance. Why? Because we're family that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Now, why can it never perish, spoil, or fade? He goes on to tell us, look what it says, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by whose power? Whose power? God's power. And how powerful is God? He's omnipotent. He is all-powerful until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. See, we don't fully get it. We don't fully experience the whole impact of our salvation until Jesus has returned, until the new heaven and the new earth have been established. But until then, 
are, we are sealed with the, the promise of the Holy Spirit, guaranteeing our inheritance that is come, and that is shielded not by our behavior, not by our denomination. It is shielded by God's own power. God himself walked century to protect my and your faith in Jesus Christ, our salvation. God keeps his promises. Can I get an amen? amen? Now, just how solid is your hope now? Paul said it this way in Romans 8, 38 and through 39. He said, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the what? Love of God that is in Christ Jesus. In the second to last book of the Bible, a real little book, one chapter long. Therefore, in verses 24 and 25 of Jude, It says, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory. How many want to give him glory this morning? Be majesty, be power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and what? Now and what? Forevermore. Why can you be sure of your relationship with God, of your promise of eternal life. Why? Why can you do it? Because God made you family. Because God keeps his promises. We can be sure. How you feeling now, huh? All right, let me throw a wrench in it. You ready for this? All this is true for you and of you if you are truly a believer. Remember all those verses we looked at in the beginning? All the ifs, the conditions? See, if you take them in context, they're not addressed to genuine believers. They're addressed to people who profess to be believers but who really aren't, or people who are intellectually trying to... understand the idea of Jesus, his resurrection, his sacrifice for sin, but have not yet entered into an intimate relationship with Christ. Paul, exhorting and admonishing the Corinthian believers in his second letter to them, in 2 Corinthians 13, 5 says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. How about you? How about you? What's this test? Now now what are you talking about? You had me feeling good. Now what's going on? See you next week. For now, let's bow our heads. Bottom line is, what we've talked about today is true. We don't have to go through life 
especially our spiritual journey, especially our faith experience, embracing in transit of hope. Embracing just, just some kind of a feeling, well, man, it sounds too good to be true, but I hope it is. I, I hope it be true of me because I know most, most of the people you talk to today, Pete, were, were good people, but that, that's not been my history. I, I, I've really blown it. See, so many believers live in the world of intransitive hope. That's not where God wants you. God wants you to embrace with unswervingly power and purpose the transitive definition of hope. To expect with confidence. And you can have exactly that. Gave you three reasons why today. Right now, I know I kind of left you on the hook, and we'll clarify that next week. But right now, thank God, right where you are, if you're a believer, you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Right now, just bow your head in your own words before him. Just thank God that he has given you transitive hope, something you can put your absolute confidence on. Because God made you family. He trumped your behavior. And he keeps his promises. But maybe you're here today and you haven't trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You haven't even professed it. Maybe you're here today and you're, you're still kind of living life under that idea that you need to be good enough to, to prove yourself to God so that he'll let you into his eternal kingdom. Well, I hope I've dispelled that, that theory. I hope I've dispelled that methodology today because that's not going to happen, my friend. And I tell you that because I love you, not to, not to speak condescendingly to you because it wouldn't happen for me that way either. The only way it can happen is because of God's grace, his love, his mercy, and us receiving that gift and we receive that gift through simple faith in Jesus Christ. Believing that it's not us. It's not our good works. But it's Jesus dying on the cross. Paying the penalty for sin. God tearing the veil of the temple saying you are now welcomed into the holy place. But you have to decide to cross the line. Every head bowed and every eye closed. No one looking around for just a minute please and we'll be done. You're here this morning, and there's still a doubt in your mind, in your soul, in your spirit of where you're going to spend eternity. You either know for sure that you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, or you've been living with that intransitive hope. No one's looking around. You know that you need Jesus Christ. You know you need to trust him as your Savior. Just raise your hand. I won't embarrass you, I promise you. Say, Pete, that's me. I've never trusted Jesus as my Savior. Anyone at all like that? All right, then I'm going to change my question. Every head bowed, no one looking around. You are a believer. We're going to solidify that next week. But you've been living an intransitive hope. 
but you don't want to live that way anymore. You, you want to be able to, you want God to help you to embrace this transit of hope, this confidence. And you just want me to pray for you and say, Pete, pray for me that I can make this transition from intransit of hope to transit of hope, that I can really lay unswervingly onto this hope. Pray for me that I could do that. Would you slip up your hand? Yeah, yes, 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 yes. You can put your hands down. Yes, yes. See, hands going up all over the place because this is real. And this, what we talked about today is where people are really living, folks. And listen, God doesn't want you to live there. He doesn't want you to live with that insecurity. He not only has provided you forgiveness, but he's provided you the assurance of your salvation. Father, I pray for every one of these men and women who raise their hand, and I know more wanted to. Because, God, I know that it's so easy for us to live that intransitive form of hope. And it's so insecure and it's so unsettling. It leaves us feeling guilty and it leaves us feeling so much more shameful of our sinfulness. And, and, and God, we just can't comprehend that, that you could love us enough to overlook all that. Well, you didn't overlook it. You overpowered it. And you, you made sure that the penalty was paid, but not by us. You sent Jesus to die. And that's why you could tear that veil open because when Jesus died, the moment he died on that cross... The penalty for sin was satisfied. And Lord, you gave mankind transit of hope. Lord, help these beautiful men and women who are believers here today to live that, to leave here with a new bounce to their step, with a freshness to their spirit, knowing, God, what you have done, knowing that you've made them family, you've trumped their behavior, and you will keep your promise to them. Thank you for that, God. Thank you for loving us despite who we are. Thank you for loving us in our most unlovable times and form. We praise you for it. We give you glory and majesty in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen, and amen.